Which symbol is your symbol for salvation? The scales or the cross? Well, I think probably most of us would immediately answer the cross this morning. But I want us to think about that question for a minute. Because if you ask the average person today around who claims to be a Christian, do you think that God will let you into heaven? The answer is usually something like this. Well, I've been pretty good. I'm, I'm not perfect. But I think my good outweighs my bad, so, yeah, I think God will let me into heaven. Well, that's the scales, not the cross, isn't it? Many, many people who claim to be Christians believe in the scales. Paying lip service to the cross. God then weighs the good, the bad. If the good outweighs the bad, well... We're okay, we go to heaven. It's all about what we do, not what he has done. And so the scales are what many people think is the symbol of their salvation. Hebrews 3 draws the same contrast. We're looking at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 this morning. Only draws it in a slightly different way asks the same question in a different way. Are you following Moses or are you following Jesus? Moses the lawgiver or Jesus the Savior? Is it our performance or is it the person of Christ that matters? Is it religion or relationship is the cliche we most often use. Well, the author of Hebrews raises this whole question and he tells us, of course, that we need to focus on Jesus by faith, not Moses by works. Look at verse 1, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Look at Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Focus on Jesus. And then he's going to go on and contrast that with the fact that many focus on Moses. I really think this is one of the biggest barriers, if not the single biggest barrier, to true Christianity. It's not about what we do. That's not true Christianity. True Christianity is about what he has done. The problem is we tend to measure our faith by our works, by our performance. And we turn Christianity into a performance-oriented religion. Even when we understand the truth of the cross for our conversion, and I suspect most of us do here this morning in this room, We understand that we have come by faith to Christ. It's by grace that we have been saved. It is through the cross that we have been saved, that we've been forgiven. What happens is that when we come to living the Christian life, what do we do? We tend to turn living the Christian life into a scales-oriented process, into a performance-oriented process. So even if we understand conversion to be by grace through the cross we tend to 
look at sanctification, the process of growing in Christ to be a works-oriented process. And we begin to measure ourselves and others by that process. The author of Hebrews says, well, think carefully about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Contemplate Jesus. Examine and then compare him to Moses. For he is the basis not only of your conversion, but of living the Christian life. Don't slip back into following Moses when you can, when you can trust Jesus, not just for conversion, but for sanctification as well. We grow by grace, not works. Verses 2 through 6 then compare Moses and Jesus. And he's setting this all up. Because beginning in verse 19, we come to the second of the five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. The second of those warnings begins in verse 7. But we can't understand his second warning in verses 7 through 19 until we understand the basis of all of that in verses 1 through 6, which is the contrast between Jesus and Moses. So I want to look this Sunday at that contrast between following Moses and following Jesus. And then that will set us up for understanding the warning beginning in verse 17. So the first contrast between Jesus and Moses, Jesus is the builder who deserves our worship. Verse 2. For, uh, verse 2, he was, that is Jesus, we're considering him, we're looking at him, he was faithful to him who appointed him as, as Moses also was in his house, in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who had professed faith in Christ. And every time we go through this, we're going to have to come back to who is he writing to? He is writing to Jews who had professed faith in Christ. They had come out of Judaism. They believed in Jesus Christ, they said, for their salvation. But they were being drawn back into the old ways. They were in danger of falling away from Christ, returning to the ways of the law and the ways of Moses. You see, the Jewish people venerated Moses as they venerated probably no other man in their history. Some Jews even believed that Moses was greater than the angels. God spoke to Moses face to face. God wrote the law on the tablets in the presence of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. The finger of God, Moses saw. God miraculously saved Moses from death as an infant. He gave him miraculous powers to lead the nation out of slavery. Moses was honored more than any other man in first century Judaism. But Jesus is greater than Moses. He deserves more honor than Moses. Now he's writing to people who had professed that. They had said they believed in Jesus Christ, but they were sliding back into the old ways. And he says Jesus is greater than Moses because just as the builder of the house is greater than the house. 
The builder of the house deserves greater honor than the one who serves in that house. God is the builder of all things, and he built all things through Jesus Christ. We've already seen that in Hebrews 1. So Jesus Christ is the builder of the house. That makes him greater than what was built. He is greater than Moses. Now, why the attraction to Moses? Why would these Jewish Christians be tempted to return to Moses? That seems so crazy. After they have found Christ, they go back to the old way? Well, I think the answer is found in human nature. They liked the law. They liked the structure. They liked the performance. They liked the tradition. They were being pulled back into following Moses and away from Christianity for those reasons. I mean, stop and think about it. The law actually makes life black and white. There's no grays in the law, right? No fuzziness, no, you have to think about this business. It is black or it is white. That's it. Everything is right or it is wrong. We have structure. We can measure everything easily. We don't really have to think too much. We can see our performance. We can feel good about our spirituality. People like that. They like that kind of structure. It seems solid and fixed <laughs> until, of course, you violate the law. And now it's, now it's uh, guilt that comes. But until then, it seems solid. It seems fixed. It seems simple. There's none of the fuzziness, the mushiness of life without the law. And so they were sliding back into the law. The Pharisees criticized Jesus in Mark 7 for violating the law. They said to him, look, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Now, they weren't concerned about the spread of the flu germs or H1N1 or anything like that. There wasn't, it wasn't an issue of cleanliness. It was an issue of the law and what was right and what was wrong. It was an issue of tradition. They were concerned with all of the laws about ritual purity. And in order to provide more structure and make it clearer who was spiritual and who was not, laws were developed to govern everything from washing pots and pans to washing your hands to the process that you went through. And that made life livable, you know. You just do all these nice, neat little things in all their nice, neat little boxes and you are a holy person. Well, life was all about following the rules. And many people like the rules. There's a comforting logic to religious rules. If everyone would just follow the rules, we'd all get along well. Rules are black and white. Traditions keep us safe from all of that stuff that might tempt us to impurity, you know? It's nice and structured. And we know just what is right and wrong and... We know what the consequences are. Well, Jesus called them hypocrites. Ouch. They were very serious about all of this stuff. But he said, you're hypocrites. He said, they honored him with their lips. They worshipped him with their rules. But their hearts were far from God. Jesus pointed out that nothing that we take in from outside can defile our hearts. It's what is inside that defiles us. 
Sin comes from inside of us. Whatever sin you do, it came from inside of you and me. We can follow all the rules and still sin destroys us from the inside because it's a heart issue. And so we are so afraid that we might be corrupted by some outside influence that we set up all these rules to protect us, keep us pure, but really it's what's inside of us that corrupts us, not what is outside of us, Jesus said. So the rules make us feel spiritual, but they don't actually make us more spiritual. And that makes us hypocrites when we follow that process. The rules then appeal to ourselves, our egos, because we can do what we need to do to be spiritual. We can easily measure others. We can compare ourselves to others. We can feel good about ourselves. Of course, we selectively apply the rules, don't we? So the rules that are important to me in church, in life, I've applied to me because I keep those rules. And you look bad, but the rules that apply to you and I fail at, well, those aren't important, you see. We selectively apply them because it's all about measuring. It's all about making sure that we look good in this process. That's the way it is with religious rules. There's, there really is a little Pharisee, I think, in all of us. And we like to think that way. We like Moses. Church is nice and neat and black and white when the rules are clear. Grace, grace is messy. It really is. Because when you're offering grace to people, you're offering it to them in the midst of messes. And grace is fuzzy. How will we know how to act if there's room to wobble here? If God forgives our sins just by coming to him in faith, doesn't that mean that people can sin and then be forgiven? No response? <laughs> but how does that encourage us to do what is right? If, if you can sin and get forgiven anyway then how does that encourage us to do what is right? That's Paul's whole argument in Romans, isn't it? What, should I sin that grace might abound? I mean, where's the, where's the structure? Where's the control? Right? If sin will be forgiven, won't we stop trying to do what is right anyway? There will be people in church that come from unclean backgrounds, impure hazardous, watch out. This whole grace thing is scary. And so we return to the ways of Moses. We didn't believe that way to get saved, but we go back to that way to control life. And that's the problem they faced. The scales seem safer in the end for managing life. And the author of Hebrews says, at the outset of this process in his argument, consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's the builder of the house. He deserves our heart worship. This is from inside of us. It's not about rules. It's about our heart worship. 
Christianity is a relationship with that person called Jesus Christ. It's first about the person, not the performance in church. If we don't get that right, he's going to argue. If we don't get that basic concept right, we will fall away from the faith. And that's where the warning goes. All five, really, all five warnings are oriented around that very issue. In fact, thinking about Jesus is a greater deterrent to sin than all of the rules that you can come up with in the world. If we tell each other not to do something, there's lots of rules, right? Lots of things that are right and wrong. And so we say, don't do these things. What do we do? Yeah, we go out and do them. The temptation is even greater because it's wrong. But if we look at Jesus and we truly worship him with our hearts, then the very process of thinking about Jesus helps us avoid the sin we're tempted to fall into. Grace is a greater deterrent to sin than law. John Piper, one of my favorite authors, has a great illustration of this. And I'm, I'm going to read his words because I can't, I can't write or speak like he can. He's so eloquent. He says this, We must not give a sexual image or impulse more than five seconds before we mount a violent counterattack with the mind. I mean that. Five seconds. In the first two seconds we shout, No, get out of my head. In the next two seconds we cry out, Oh God, in the name of Jesus, help me, save me, now I'm yours. Guess what? That's a good beginning, he says. But then the real battle begins with sexual sin. This is a mind war. The absolute necessity is to get the image and the impulse out of our mind. How? Get a counter image into the mind. Demand of your mind to fix its gaze on Christ on the cross. So you're being tempted to sin. Demand of your mind to fix its gaze on Christ on the cross. Use all your fantasizing power to see his lacerated back. 39 lashes left little flesh intact. He heaves with his breath up and down against the rough vertical beam of the cross. Each breath puts splinters into the lacerations. Our Lord gasps. From time to time he screams out with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from the wood and the massive spikes through his wrist rip into the nerve endings and he screams again with agony. And he pushes up with his feet to give some relief to his wrists. But the bones and nerves in his pierced feet crush against each other with anguish and he screams again. There's no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst. He loses his breath and thinks he is suffocating. And suddenly his, in, his body involuntarily gasps for, for air. And all the injuries unite in pain. In torment he forgets about the crown of two-inch thorns and throws his head back into desperation. And only to hit one of the thorns perpendicular against the cross beam and drive it half an inch deep into his skull. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break out over his pain-wracked body as every cry brings more and more pain. Now, now I'm not thinking about the sexual image anymore. I'm at Calvary, and he's doing it for me. See the power of considering Jesus in the middle of that temptation to sin. You can't think about Jesus 
and pursue the sin anymore. Not when you think about what he's done for you. That's what he did for me. That's what he did for you. His grace has a purifying power. No law, no rule, nobody saying you can't do this could ever accomplish for us. Can you really think about Jesus on the cross? And while you're thinking about Jesus on the cross, do that sin. I don't think so. What you want to do is you put, want to put him out of your mind when you want to pursue sin. Early in his career, Matt Redman, the popular Christian musician from Britain, was singing with his church's praise band when his pastor confronted them, that is the praise band. He said they were proud of their musical performance, but they were neglecting true worship. Insulted by the charge, the members of the band left the church. Forget it. We're not doing this anymore. All that is except Redmond. Shortly afterward, Matt Redmond wrote his hit song, The Heart of Worship, which included these words, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. It really is. It really is. Second principle. Jesus is the Son, then, who desires our confidence. Look, look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a Son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now we come to the second contrast, you see, between Jesus and Moses. Moses is the servant in the house. Jesus is the son over the house. Moses is a servant, and the Greek word for servant here is an unusual one. It actually means an honored personal attendant in the house, an aide. But even as an honored personal attendant, he's still a servant in the household. And the word house, by the way, means household. It's not the building, it's the people. It's the household. So he's a servant, an honored personal attendant in the servant, in the, in the household, except, excuse me. But Jesus is the owner. He's the head of the household. But then he doesn't stop there with the analogy. Look closely. Jesus is the son over the household, but who's the household? We are. We're the members of the household. We are the household of the son. Our very purpose for existence is tied up in the son. So why are you going back to Moses, is his point. Our existence is connected to Jesus Christ. We are a part of his household. Why go back to Moses? The Apostle John in 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You come to Christ at the cross and you, you lay your sins down, and it, whatever you've done, it's taken care of, right? And life, life is in the Son. 
Now you have new life. Now you have hope. Now you have eternal life. So if you have life in the Son, why would you return to life under the law? Or to use the Hebrews analogy, if you are part of the household of the Son, the family of the Son of God, and remember we studied, he's not ashamed to call you part of that family, right? No matter what you've done, if you come to him by faith. If you're part of that family, why would you want to return to being just a servant in the household? Which would you rather be, the servant in the house or the children of the household? Hebrews is drawing, then, this contrast to ask these very questions as a warning that we'll look at next Sunday. John also points out in 1 John that if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will purify ourselves from sin. Once again, the way of Jesus is more powerful for purification than the way of Moses. John wrote in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. We're part of his household, see? And it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You fix your eyes on Christ and the hope you have of life in Christ, and that, is what leads to purification. That's what will change us. You see, the dynamic of following Christ, not following Moses, is what changes us, is what transforms us. The way of the cross is more powerful than the way of the scales in making us right. When we truly consider Jesus, we will purify ourselves by His grace and we will follow His ways because we love Him and our eyes are fixed on him as our hope. In May of 2006, the Journal of the Air and Waste Management Association published a study conducted by the National Science Foundation on the side effects of several indoor air purifiers. I won't ask how many of you have air purifiers, because you might want to not listen to this study, but... Surprisingly, the study found that certain ionic air purifiers, those using a process called ozonolysis, actually produce pollution. Well, isn't that nice? Here's how it works. Ionic air purifiers function by charging airborne particles through a process called ionization. Once charged, these particles then stick to metal electrodes, and theoretically the air is cleaner after passing through that process, for it takes the particles that have been ionized out of the air. But the study found that the ionization process produces a side effect called ozone. The gas is helpful when located way up in the atmosphere. It blocks the UV rays. But at the surface of the, ozone, of the Earth, ozone is better known as smog. Right? Human exposure to high levels of ozone can cause damaged lungs, shortness of breath, throat irritation, worsening of asthma. Study leader Sergei Nizkorodov, a chemistry professor at the University of California, Irvine, says people operating air purifiers indoors are more prone to being exposed to ozone levels in excess of public health standards. 
Indeed, the study revealed that some homes and cars that were using these purifiers registered ozone levels exceeding 350 parts per billion, which would trigger a stage 2 smog alert in your home. If measured outside, obviously. In 2005, acting chairperson of the California Air Resources Board delivered the following warning. These machines are insidious, marketed as a strong defense against indoor air pollution. They emit ozone, the same chemical that the ARB and U.S. Environmental Protection Agency have been trying to eliminate from our air for decades. More chilling is that some people susceptible to the ill effects of ozone will eagerly bring these Trojan horses home. Well, now we can go examine and find out whether whatever we're using at home is one of those that is filling our home with ozone, right? But that's not really the point here. The point is that in the same way, often our efforts to be pure in God's sight and to be pure as a church and to be pure as Christians actually ends up making problems worse not better, actually ends up polluting ourselves. See, if we try to make ourselves clean before God by relying on our own goodness, it doesn't work, does it? The cross of Jesus Christ is the key, not just for becoming a Christian, but for living the Christian life. We constantly have to come back to him. Consider Jesus. Otherwise, we end up even more unclean than we were in the first place. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where I used to worship when I was in school, said this, Christ sends none away empty but those who are full of themselves. (laughs) That's good. That's very true. And that's the problem with following Moses. We get full of ourselves. We become little Pharisees. Now we're set up for the warning, you see, that he's going to talk about in the next verses. And that's next Sunday, all right? (laughs) But you notice he sets it up at the end of verse 6. He says, we are the household of the Son of God if... Do you see that, if... We are part of his household if, oh boy, maybe we ought to look at what the if is, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's the condition of salvation. Continuance by faith in Christ is the proof of genuine salvation. If we start and then we turn away, we never really started. I don't mean if we turn away momentarily or if we fail. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the person who turns away from following Christ. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But notice the nature of the condition. It's very important. The condition is not our works. It's not whether we fail, whether we sin or not. That's the condition. Because as Christians, we're going to sin, aren't we? That's not the condition here. The condition is not our works. It's not our performance. It's not our religious zeal. It's not whether we dot our religious I's and cross our religious T's. The condition is 
hope. If we hold tenaciously to the confidence and the boldness of our hope in Christ, we are His household. That means when we fail, when we blow it, if we come back to the cross, that's proof we're part of His household, you see. The word confidence is an important word in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see it many times. We are to be bold and open and confident in our relationship with the Lord. We can be outspoken. We can be frank and confident in our relationship with Him because it isn't based on our performance. It's based on His person and what He's done. So our confidence is not founded on our works, but His work. We can boast in the hope because the hope of life in Christ is His hope for us. So we are to hold this hope throughout life. And by the way, the word to hold on to or hold tenaciously is a word that actually refers to take possession of for ourselves. It was a word actually that was used in the first century for making an arrest. You know, when a policeman makes an arrest. In fact, it was used of a man who was arrested for stealing camels. So, If you arrest this confidence in the hope of Jesus Christ, if you make it yours, if if you take possession of it, that's what he's talking about here. Hold on to it. We are to seize the hope and possess that hope. Lots of tough stuff happens to us in life, right? You can still possess the hope, you see. We can still hold tenaciously to the confidence we have in Christ that He will get us through the tough stuff that life dishes out. It will bring us back to the cross when we sin and we fail, but we come back to the hope we have in Jesus Christ that He can change us and that we have that hope in Him. We possess it. We've arrested it. And that will encourage us when we're struggling, when we're weak, when we fail, when we sin. Hope does not just motivate people to positive action. It actually has healing power, says John Ortberg in his book. I love the title of this book. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. That's good. Ortberg cites a medical study in which 122 men who had suffered their first heart attack were evaluated on their degree of hopefulness and pessimism. Of the 25 most pessimistic men... 21 had died eight years later. 21 out of 25. Of the 25 most hopeful or optimistic, only six had died. Loss of hope increased the odds of death more than 300%. It predicted death more accurately than any of the other medical risk factors, including blood pressure, amount of damage to the heart, or cholesterol level. So if you want to measure... (laughs) Measure your hope. That's a greater predictor. Ortberg adds his own take on the study. He says, better to eat Twinkies in hope than to eat broccoli in despair. (laughs) I can live with that. How about you? (laughs) All right, following Jesus. The life we have is an adventure. And you don't know what's around the corner, do you? You don't know what's coming. 
You can't tell what's coming. You can't tell what temptation will come. You can't tell what uh, life's going to throw your way, what struggles will come. God knows, but you don't know, and I don't know. But we know we can possess the confidence, the hope of Jesus Christ, that he's with us there, through it, whatever comes, right? That's what he's talking about here. That's the key to not falling away. The key is to focus on Jesus through all those twists and turns of life. I've watched some blind skiers at Sunday River. Maybe you've seen them on television, or maybe you've seen them at Sunday River with the handicapped ski program. The blind skier wearing a bright pink vest stays directly behind the instructor, right? And the instructor shouts out the instructions all the way down the mountain. Now, I have, a, I have trouble getting down the mountain when I can see what's coming. They can't see what's coming. They have to listen and follow every instruction exactly to get down the mountain safely. Well, that's the same way with Jesus. Remaining or abiding in Jesus means following him every step of the way. Following a set of rules won't get you there. We can tell our kids to follow the rules, but what, they, what do they do when the unexpected mogul comes up? Or the sharp turn comes that nobody expected? You think you're doing all right. You think you've made decisions and wham, you're blindsided. And you're in something you never thought you'd be in. And you're doing something you never thought you'd do. Or you're facing something you never thought you'd face. Things spin out of control. What do you do? Rules won't help you there. Jesus will. Fix your eyes on him, you see. You need to hear and see Jesus. So cultivate a faith in a person, a living, dynamic person, not a faith that is in a dogma. Tradition won't get you through life when things spin out of control, but Jesus will. Hold fast to the hope you have in Jesus Christ. Focus on Him. Father, I'm not sure there's any more vital lesson than we can learn that we can learn than this. For we know that we don't know what's coming today, tomorrow, the next day. We don't know the choices we'll have to make. And we can set up all those rules for ourselves and for others. And then we are blindsided and the rules don't apply and we don't know what to do. Help us, Lord, not to follow Moses, but to follow you, Lord. To have a relationship with you and to hold tenaciously to arrest our confidence and our boasting in the hope we have in you. For we know that you can get us through. For Lord Jesus, you are with us and you will be with us all the way. In your name we thank you. Amen.